again for tuning in to this latest and greatest episode of Cowboys Crunch Time with KD. I am your host, of course, KD Drummond. If you so choose, please follow me on Twitter at KD Drummond NFL. And obviously you can follow along with our musings on CowboysHQ.com. And we are here today to talk about the Cowboys implosion and hopefully resurrection over the past two weeks. Entering last week's game, the Cowboys were 2-0, facing off against the undefeated 2-0 Atlanta Falcons. And for a half, it was all good. And then for a half, it was all bad. The Cowboys raced out to three, count them, one, two, three different 14-point leads and were unable to hold them, taking an 11-point lead into halftime and then watching the Atlanta Falcons run rush shot over them, 22 to nothing in the second half, 25 to nothing overall. Everything that worked on offense stopped working. They didn't adjust. And for the most part, the Atlanta Falcons just basically kept adding on to what they were doing on their offensive side of the ball. And the defense, which is so undermanned due to injuries and suspensions and the like, they couldn't keep up. And eventually, the elite, probably right now with Des Bryant being injured, the man staking the claim to being the best wide receiver in the game with no arguments coming from this guy, Julio Jones tore them apart. And it wasn't even really just all at once. It was just kind of like just beating and beating, and then he eventually broke the big one, and he just seemed so uncoverable. Probably a tall order for Tyler Patman to be able to check him, especially when the safety doesn't do what they're supposed to do. Um Barry Church is, I won't say at fault, but he had something to do with it. That big play when uh, they had Julio in the slot and Tyler Patman didn't get a good jam on him because it's very tough to get a jam on a slot receiver. But more so, you expect Julio to go off. Yes, the Cowboys had done a great job corralling the likes of Megatron and then uh, Jordy Nelson as well as Odell Beckham in the first game of this year. But you expect somebody like Julio Jones to go get his. 140 and two touchdowns, you can still beat Atlanta if he does that. You can't beat Atlanta if he does that, and Devontae Freeman makes a fool of your run defense, and that's what happened. The Cowboys had no answers for being able to stop him, and the most frustrating thing about it was there was almost always somebody in the backfield running right past him. And once he was past that one guy, he was good for seven or eight yards or more. So this week in practice, the Cowboys have a lot to work on. 
The Cavalry is coming, but they won't be back for the Saints. And we know what happens when you play the Saints in New Orleans. I don't care that they've lost six in a row at home. I do care that the Cowboys have won 10 in a row on the road. But the Saints get up. Those fans get up to play the Cowboys. We all know about rivalries. The Cowboys have theirs in the NFC East, but they are the rival of many teams who aren't their rival. New Orleans is one of them. Houston is another one. These are teams that hate the Cowboys much more than we hate them. Their fans feel the same way, and therefore, whenever there's a game in their home stadium, it's a tough ordeal for the Cowboys to deal with. And that's what they're going to be. Today's show, we're going to bring you a nice lineup. I will have the one and only Joey Ikes joining us shortly to break down the performance of Brandon Whedon and how the offense operated with him. Very interesting comments from Brandon Whedon today, who basically put the coaches under the bus. If Now, let me preface that. I've only seen single quotes. I didn't hear the whole interview of what happened when he talked to the media today. But the one I saw was basically him saying he's not interested in being a check down type of player. So if that's the case and all you did was check down, then you're implying that that's what the game plan asked for. So we're going to have to ask my man, Joey, Joey Ikes, who studied the film to see if, Whedon was just choosing not to go to the D options because we've seen the bonds, we've seen the stills. There were plays available for him to make downfield that he chose not to. We're going to have to break all of that down. After that, we're going to have my man Mike Fisher, Cowboys insider, direct with a report from Valley Ranch. We'll get some insight as to exactly what Whedon said, as well as the rest of the team and the coaches, latest and greatest from Valley Ranch, of course. We will also be blessed with the insights of the one and only Scott Alexander, SaintsInsider.com, also of ESPN 100.3 fame in New Orleans. He will break down for us the latest on the Saints. Looking forward to that. You guys will enjoy it. And you know what it is. It's Cowboys Crunch Time with KD. Make no mistake about it. Let's get to it. Once again, the one and only Mr. Joey Ikes. How are you, sir? I'm doing fantastic, my friend. How are you? I have absolutely no complaints except for the fact that the Cowboys are in a state of turmoil, if you ask certain people on Twitter. They are 2-1. and one. They still have a winning record. They're going up against an un- an, a winless team on Sunday. But everybody wants to talk about basically them falling from grace after a tremendous first half. They could not adjust to Atlanta's adjustments, and they were exposed as Atlanta decided they were going to focus on stopping the run and let Brandon Whedon do what he wanted to do, and he was not able to do what he wanted to do. So I know that you have your Cowboys film room that's up on Cowboys HQ right now. Hopefully everybody has had a chance to view it. If not, definitely head over to Cowboys HQ right now and look at it. But give our listeners the breakdown of what you saw when you were setting Brandon Wheaton and how he performed on Sunday. Okay. So uh, let's see, where can we start? Um, Basically 
there's been these narratives kind of developed, and they started even in, as the second half played out. Why aren't they throwing deep? Why aren't they throwing down the field? What's going on? Why can't they run the ball? And then you hear the answers to that from, from certain individuals in the media that cover the team, very respectable individuals that say, well, the wide receivers weren't getting open downfield. The, the, the Seahawks, or not the Seahawks, I keep saying the Seahawks because the, the scheme's so similar. The Falcons were playing in a way that was forcing Brandon Whedon to throw the ball underneath. They were leaving room underneath and, and forcing him to throw the ball there. And at the same time, we weren't running the ball well because they were all standing close to the line of scrimmage. And so we couldn't, we couldn't throw the ball deep because they were all really far back, but we couldn't <laughs> run the ball because they were all really close to the line of scrimmage. So I think Atlanta must have been playing with like 15 guys on defense. In the that's what Joseph Randall said. That's, that's the, that's the, exactly. That's the only explanation for, for all of these narratives that have, that have taken place uh, in the last several days. Um, and, and the truth is, is that, yes, on just about every snap, the Seahawks play, or again, here we are again, the, the Falcons. <laughs> The Falcons play a single high safety. They play the Seahawks style of defense, a single high safety, the second safety in the box. And what winds up happening is they usually have a one-man numerical advantage in the box over the offense. And that's always going to be a possibility because of the fact that the offense has the quarterback. Quarterback, and this goes back to the reason why the Wildcat works for a while and the reason why the zone read thing works and that kind of stuff is – and as long as the quarterback is not a threat to run the ball, then the then the defense doesn't have to account for him in the run game, and they're they're able to have an eight on seven defenders versus blockers advantage, or a seven on six, or a six on five, depending on how many people the offense has in the box. And that's that is not, and at least in my opinion, that is not overcommitting to stop the run having a one-man advantage in the box. That's like standard operating procedure on early downs, in my opinion, unless right. you're facing like, unless you're facing a team that doesn't ever run the ball. It's put eight guys in the box, force them to run the ball against an eight-man front. And the thing about the zone blocking scheme that the Cowboys run so much, and I know I'm going against the Brandon Weed here, but we, we'll get there. Uh, yeah. The thing about the zone run scheme is they purposely leave the backside defensive end unblocked. And that is to account for this eight-man or seven-man front against the six-man front. So right. this whole this whole they had eight guys in the box, so that's why they couldn't run the ball thing. You can miss me with that because uh, Alex Gibbs, Godfather of the zone blocking scheme, he he says in his clinic talks all the time: if you can't run against eight-man fronts, you ha- you're in trouble running this system. And if you start seeing nine and ten-man fronts, then you got to be able to throw the ball. But against an eight-man front, you should be able to run with regularity against the, with with this run with this blocking system. So uh-huh. you can you can miss, you can miss all that. Uh, in a normal situation, a normal game situation, if a team plays an eight-man box against the Cowboys, it means that Des Bryant is one-on-one with somebody, and with Tony Romo there, he's going to make the adjustment and throw the ball. That's right, that's exactly. understandable and acceptable, which is probably where some of the narrative comes in. Is people are so focused on the Cowboys and so used to seeing that. That, that they're not used to that idea. But anyway, so so that's the run game part of it. They should have been able to continue to run the ball. They got their butts kicked inside. So we'll, we'll, that's the second-half adjustment. Atlanta kicked their butt. Um, 
from a passing game perspective. Um, the way the Cowboys called the game from a passing game perspective for the majority of the game, it did not appear to me as though the game plan was to consistently dump the ball underneath. And I'll explain to you why. So multiple times throughout the game, probably in the double digits number of times, the Cowboys came out in a three wide receiver formation with all three wide receivers to one side of the formation with Jason Witten lined up in line as the tight end on the opposite side of the formation with the running back on the same side as Jason Witten. So it winds up being trips on one side, no wide receivers on the opposite side, but a tight end and a running back to that opposite side. The third receiver in that set or the inside slot receiver closest to the offensive line in that set was Terrence Williams. The primary reason why you bring one of your primary outside wide receivers inside to the core of the formation is to do one thing and one thing only, and that's to try to find ways to get in the ball. They were trying to scheme ways to get Terrence Williams the ball in this game, and he was open several times in this game, as was Uh Jason Witten up the scene multiple times in the game. And I can tell you that I know that – and we'll never know for sure, but you can watch the film and get an idea. And on the first drive of the second half, after Doug Freeze holding penalty on second and 16, it pushed it back to second and 26. And we talk about this uh-huh. in the Cowboys HQ film room like you talked about. Um, the Cowboys run a scheme where Cole Beasley's in the slot on one side and Jason Witten's at tight end on the other, and they both run seam routes right, straight up the seams. The two outside wide receivers, Terrence Williams and Bryce Butler, run eight or ten-yard curls or comeback routes. And then Lance Dunbar sits up underneath. And on second 26, they run these routes. The safety in the middle of the field shades significantly over to Cole Beasley's side, and Jason Witten is wide open. Like, I'm talking 30, 40-yard completion open. Catching uh-huh. uh, Easy throw, clear window, clear as day throw the ball just over the linebacker. He catches it. Jason Witten converts a second down and 26. And now you're inside the Cal- inside the Falcons 40 yard line with a chance to drive down. If he makes that throw, he chooses to dump the ball to Lance Dunbar who gets tackled for a three yard gain. They gain 17 yards on third down because of the way the Falcons play it. And they wind up punting. And then the, the Seahawks, again, the Falcons proceed to drive down the field and, and score a touchdown. And that's when they, the game really kind of started to turn around. The next time the Cowboys have the ball on second down and 11, Brandon Whedon throws a pass to to Jason Witten up the seam on the same exact route combination as they ran on second 26. So what that tells me is he went to the sideline after that drive and Scott Linehan sat down with him and showed him a picture and said, I know you have to see it to be willing to throw it, so here's the picture. This is what it is. That route's going to be open. Throw it. And the next time he threw it, and he was open again. Although if you look around the field on the All-22, you look back, and the other three guys on the field are more open than Witten is. Right. Because the safety is now shaded to Witten's side, like the Falcons saw the same thing. The safety the safety shaded to Witten's side. Beasley's open. The two wide receivers are open on the outside because they're running comebacks against cover three, which is always open. And so you literally have four guys across the field open, and he finally makes the throw down the field. He overthrows him, 
and they wind up punting again, and away we go, and the game then continues to spiral out of control. So, and then there's the play when Doug Free got his holding penalty where they ran a very specifically designed, very uniquely tailored route combination that's designed to beat cover three, which is the, the Falcons' base zone coverage. Single safety in the middle of the field. We've talked about this before. Corners drop deep into the middle, deep to the thirds of the field on the outside, and you run the go route on the outside, and you run an out route or a corner route uh, from the inside wide receiver, and you use some sort of a flat route or a, a motion, an option route or something underneath to occupy the underneath defender. And what winds up happening is that corner route becomes wide open, um, and it happens. But because what it appears to me is that Brandon Whedon has to see a guy be open before he believes that he's open. Whereas in the NFL, you, you can't wait for the window to be there before right, you, you have to it because by, right. Because by the time you see the window, it's going to be closed by the time the ball gets there. You have to understand defenses and leverage and coverages enough and anticipate based on the routes you're running going to be open and make those throws in that context. And either a the coaching staff told him not to do not to make those throws unless he saw it, or b he can't see it, meaning he doesn't understand defenses well enough, or he can't he, he can't make the plays. He doesn't read the defense fast enough. He doesn't he doesn't understand pre-snap keys well enough because there are, there are plays that I sit there and I watch the film and they send Jason Witten in motion across the formation and a, a safety follows him and I go oh it's man coverage. Mm-hmm. And then the safety's in the middle of the field. So you go, oh, it's cover one. So the corners are the corners are playing outside leverage, and Terrence Williams runs a slant. And instead of throwing it as the window comes open, he throws it after he sees Williams clear into the window. He throws it late. Justin Durant jumps up, tips the ball. The ball gets deflected off of Terrence Williams and almost gets intercepted. So he's he's late on every throw he tries to make down the field. And if you notice, throughout the first half, he was throwing the ball a little farther, 10, 12 yards down the field but it always happened after he, he would step up in the pocket and kind of scramble a little bit, and the guy would be wide right. open because of the scramble, right. and he'd throw the ball to Cole Beasley. So he's, then he's seeing the guy open before he throws the ball. In the NFL, that's a death sentence. And, and I just – I've been critical of Brandon Whedon in that sense because people have talked like, oh, he completed 22 passes out of 26. There's nothing no. more he could have done to win the game. They gave up 28 points, so on and so forth. Even the head coaches come out and said, okay, we could have done more at the quarterback position to help us have a chance to win the game. Uh, so, Stan, yes, he's a backup quarterback. There may not be three or four backup quarterbacks in the league that can make those kind of throws, but in that particular game, in order for your team to win, you needed your quarterback to be able to make those kind of throws. And he didn't do it, and it contributed very, very heavily to those guys losing. And if you notice since about Monday afternoon or Tuesday, when the coaches tape came out, the criticisms of Brandon Whedon have increased significantly as the criticisms of the wide receivers and defense have decreased significantly as people have really gotten an understanding of what happened in the game. So again, it's, I'm not, I'm not presenting, trying to portray myself as Nostradamus or as, as somebody better or greater than I am, all I can do is talk about what I see and, and be honest about what I see. And the fact that Brandon Weed was a backup quarterback has little to do with his role in 
the team not being able to to execute in the second half and be able to to go on and win the game. And you can you can put a lot of blame on the offensive line because they didn't play that good in the second half. You can put blame on the defense because they did give up drives. But as shorthanded as they were, and as as many plays as they were playing, you can only expect so much. Like, these defensive linemen in this system are not supposed to play 45 or 50 plays. They had four right. defensive linemen play more than 45 plays. Four. Because the, 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 attrition, the, the attrition was atrocious. Exactly. exactly. I mean, DeMarcus Lawrence played like 59 plays in the game. And Jack Crawford played 54. Jack Crawford's supposed to be like a rotational guy who comes in and rushes the passer from the three technique every now and then and plays 15 snaps a game. And right. he played 50. He played 54 snaps, most of which were at right defensive end. Your premier pass rush position was occupied by a guy who usually rushes at defensive tackle and only for about 15 snaps. So that shows you where you are at in terms of being able to get to the quarterback, being able to stop the run, those sorts of things. And in the meantime, during the game, you lost Tyrone Crawford for a while, and you lost Nick Hayden for a while, you lost, uh, you lost Sean Lee for a couple of drives, and that second 26 throw that Brandon Whedon didn't make was on the drive right after Sean Lee got hurt. Sean Lee right. only missed one only missed one Atlanta possession, and it was the possession immediately following that three and out. And and they ran 11 or seven. They ran seven or eight plays, went down and scored a touchdown, and made it 25 to 28. And then yep. by the time and then the Cowboys basically the Cowboys go six and out, and they only got a first down because they were roughing the passer penalty. They go six and out the next series, and then the Falcons get on the field again, and Sean Lee's back. But by then, the entire team is toast because the offense couldn't sustain a drive. So there was there was plenty of fault to lie on the offense for the fact that the Cowboys lost that game and fell apart in the second half. And, uh, and refusing to acknowledge that or denying that or placing blame on the defensive line or anything like that or having greater expectations than are than – are, available of the defensive line uh, is, is, is un- as just as unsound as saying that Brandon Whedon should have been a playmaker, if, if you want to argue that. You don't need your backup quarterback to make 12 plays like you might want your starting quarterback to make for you, but you need him to make two. You need him to make those two throws to Jason Witten up the seam that completely changed the game because that's two more field goals at least that the Cowboys get. And if you get both of those, that's probably one less possession that the Falcons get. And if you get two more field goals and take away one possession from the from the Falcons, you win the game thirty four to twenty eight. So, so that that's just kind of my uh, that, that's my dissertation there as I go on to ramble for fifteen <laughs> minutes about what happened with the offense. But but that it's, is it's that all is, good, man. People people needed to hear that that's that's definitely a good a good summation. And I think after the game was over, when everybody was trying to lay blame and everybody, it, it's it's a funny thing, even in the media. We see people, it's, you know, mostly a fan thing, but even in the media, they try to assign blame to one specific thing. And I, I tweeted that I, I was seeing this. It's not on the offense. It's not on the defense. It's not on the coaching staff. It's on all of them, as well as the fact that the Cowboys were severely undermanned based on the injuries and the suspensions and all of those sorts of things. It was a group effort, but you have 100% identified the flow of how everything seemed to fall apart. Uh, so what we're going to do is we're going to wind this up for today. But my interesting thing that obviously we'll talk about after the New Orleans game, if things go south, do you see them? And this really quick, if things go south, do you see them making a transition to Matt Castle based on these limitations that Wheaton has? 
I think it would have to go really, really, really far south. And I think it won't be after New Orleans. I think it would be like after the Giants game where you get – because then by then you get your cavalry back on defense, you get Hardy, McLean, and Gregory back, you get Dez back week seven for the Giants. If you have all of those guys back and it continues to be as bad as it has and they continue to lose, then, yeah, I think I think that there's a chance you see it at that point, but probably not any time before that. See, I actually differ. I think that he'll have uh, the New Orleans game, and I think that he'll have the Patriots game. But I, if things if they if they come out of the Patriots game two and three, and Whedon doesn't have, you know, multiple touchdowns in either one of the games or anything like that, I think you're giving Matt Castle the, the bye week to get ready to be the, to be the starter. I, I, don't, I don't think that – I think Whedon needs to win one of these next two games to make it through the bye week as a starter because that's just too much of a perfect opportunity to have two weeks to get Castle ready, and he would have basically, you know, all the, the three weeks under his belt to get used to the system. Um, and him supposedly being a smart quarterback, I think he's more talented than Brandon Whedon uh, based on what we've seen and obviously what you broke down in the film study. But we'll pick this up again next week. Hopefully we won't have to talk about it and the Cowboys can come out of the Saints game with a victory and with some kind of offensive passing game potency. So we'll check back with you again at that point. My man Joey Ikes, once again, it is always a pleasure to talk with you and we're going to chop it up again real soon. Sounds great. time for our favorite segment of the show hook line and sinker with the one and only cowboys insider mike fisher at fish sports on twitter and fish i have to ask you to give me the skinny on it because from what i saw it seemed like brandon whedon was trying to explain away the game that he just played by saying that he was instructed to basically be check down man as opposed to looking down the field. We just talked to Joey Ice breaking down the film, but I want you to give us a scoop on exactly what was said and how he intended that to come across. Yeah, it didn't it wasn't meant to come across as excuse making. Uh although I do think he he has tired already of being ripped to shreds because he he didn't get more done in addition to twenty eight first half points. So I think he finally has uh, you know, let, let that burr under his saddle start scratching a little bit about the criticism. Not that that's a bad thing, but he wasn't throwing anybody else under the bus. Uh, he was, to a great degree, telling the truth. When we did our pregame breakdown of this thing, we talked all about how Atlanta has one great defensive vulnerability, and that is uh, Marine in New York, Lance Dunbar in Dallas, they don't stop that guy. And so that was part of the game plan. That doesn't mean, however, that there weren't deep throws to be made, because there was a few. Uh, and it absolutely doesn't mean that Terrence Williams and company uh, don't need to do a better job to get open. But uh, I, I think it's a, it's a juicy quote about the dead horse. It's easy, I, I, can, I can make a cartoon about it here in about 10 minutes if you want me to. <laughs> <laughs> but, he, but he needs to hurry up 
and I think he will, hurry up and make sure that he keeps his temporary number one job and not worry about horses. He's going to have to worry about saints and then worry about competition, which was a big theme of the day at the Wednesday Cowboy practice. Well, let's talk about that because from from uh, well, I'll I'll let you tell the story. A lot of people are waiting to see if Matt Castle will essentially ascend to being the number one guy with Romo out. But you have some information that it's not. It doesn't look like it's happening anytime in the immediate near future because. So yeah, so Jason Garrett in the press conference mentions that it's a competition for the number two, temporary number two. That Kellen Moore, who was that guy last Sunday, and. Matt Castle are still involved in that competition. Then I go pull Red Ball aside a little bit later and say, so did you mean what you said on the podium? Is that really the case? And he said, yep, competition. Well, I've come to find out that while it is my view that Matt Castle needs to hurry up and win that competition over Kellen Moore because the Cowboys will be that much better for it. I know the Boise Staters don't love that, but, but I believe it to be true, that as of today, Kellen Moore is still number two. He hadn't given up the job yet. And uh, we've kicked this around a lot, KD. The offensive coordinator here has a great deal of faith and trust in Kellen Moore. That doesn't mean the rest of the organization shares it completely. Otherwise, why even bother making that trade? If if you already thought you had a real answer at number two, uh, or, or number you know number two now and number three later in Kellen Moore, oh my gosh, why even bother making the trade? So organizationally, they may not feel that way, but the offensive coordinator and for now the head coach, Kellen Moore is the number two quarterback of the Dallas Cowboys as of Wednesday. And I, I say this compliment in a complimentary way. That is a hell of a story. It's a hell of a story for that kid because he has no business doing this, but good for him that he's doing it. Castle's working really hard. He, he's living in a hotel, just moved his little family down here. He's staying up all night studying. He's going to get caught up here fast. Uh, I, I think I think he'd like to work here again next year, if if possible. So this is a Wednesday competition. It's a Sunday competition. It's a 2016 competition. But right now, hats off to Kellen Moore. That's all I can say. All right. Do you do you get any sense from the coach that Brandon Whedon is on a short leash with the bye week coming up? If he doesn't perform well over the next couple of games that there could be a change once they get a couple of weeks to get a new guy acclimated to the number one role. Our man, Mark Lane, was among those who grabbed Stephen Jones in the hallway today. And Stephen Jones's quote is uh, something to the effect of Brandon Whedon knows, he knows we went and got Castle. I mean, he, you know, he knows we went and got Castle for a purpose. So I think it's fair to say that if Brandon Whedon goes out there and stinks it up, and I'm not talking about the kind of game he had against Atlanta. That was not a stink it up. Right. That, that was just a loss. But, but if he goes out there and, and executes poorly, plays poorly, bad decisions, bad throws, and a loss, that, then I think we've got a Monday morning full-blown quarterback controversy, and I won't blame us. Whereas now, you know, Brandon Whedon didn't lose the game uh, last Sunday. That, that, was a, you know, that was an owner to the janitor loss. But if Brandon Whedon goes and is a pivotal reason that bad decisions, bad throws, bad everything, and they lose at New Orleans, then we've, then we've got a different setup. All right. Now, before I let you go, uh, a lot of talk has happened about the Cowboys running back by committee situation. It started off with a bang in the first quarter and then disappeared for the rest of the game. 
Uh, obviously, there's been a lot of talk. We've had articles up on Cowboys HQ about it, about the guy that they traded for from Seattle. And you have some news for us about how things are looking as of today in practice. So give us a scoop on that. Well, we take a lot of pride around here in being right first. And that's why we can write our Matt Forte story. And, and we're right. And have been, by the way, since last May on Matt Forte. And uh, we wrote about the cult of Christian last week, the Cowboys cult of Christian, and how, how, how excited that they get when there's a photo tweeted out that makes it look like Christian Michaels taking first-team snaps last week, which he wasn't, and he hasn't until today. And yeah. we talked about on Monday, we talked about how there was going to be competition in Wednesday's practice. And I said, uh, defensive line, left guard, wide receiver, but most of all, quarterback and running back. And today, for the first time, Texas A&M product, Christian Michael, actually took snaps with the first team. And we've got the full story on CowboysHQ.com. I, I don't – and, I, you know, the next question is going to be asked is, how many snaps? Who's benched? Oh, they <laughs> carry four. I, yeah, it's just Wednesday, and it's just snaps. But the the Cowboys cult of Christian has has a little breathing room today, and and a little reason to to thump its chest. And those Aggies, they do thump their chest, and good for them. Christian Michael is in the mix for the first real time in his Cowboys career as of today. And there it is. That is music to so many people's ear. Uh, for me, myself personally, who's been looking for the bruising back to compliment uh, what Joseph Randall and Lance Dunbar bring to the table, I would love to see uh, Michael get some snaps. There are obviously others who want a bigger role for him than that. So we will be on pins and needles to see how this plays out over the next week or so. And obviously, for fans that want to know the latest and greatest, they are following Mike Fisher at Fish Sports on Twitter because he will give you the real deal all the time. Thank you so much, Fish. We appreciate your time, man. Thanks, brother. He said, I'm right what I see. Right to make it right, don't like what I be. I'd like to make it like the sights on TV. Quite the great life, so nice and easy. See, now you can still die from that, but it's better than not being alive from straps. Agree, a meat notebook and a big that clip when it's pushed and a whack-ass beat. That's a track that's weak that he got last week, cause everybody in the stool was like, that's that heat. A bass heavy medley with a sample from the 70s with a screwed up hook that went, stack that cheese. Something, something, something. Stack that cheese. Mother, sister, cousin. Stack that cheese. He couldn't think of nothing. Stack that cheese. He turns down the beat, right as black MPs. Crying from the next room, my baby. All right, and now we are joined by the one and only Scott Alexander of statesinsider.com and also obviously 100.3 FM ESPN Radio New Orleans. Scott, thank you so much for joining us today. So good to be here, KD. How you doing, buddy? I, I have no complaints as we get ready for this beautiful Sunday night matchup. Uh, the Cowboys and the Saints, uh, you might have better news than we have. I don't think this is what NBC planned for when they signed up for Saints Cowboys, uh, having Brandon Whedon and Luke McCown as a starting quarterback. Uh, if you could bring our uh, listeners and readers up to speed on the Drew Brees rotator cuff injury and, and where it stands right now. Well, he's throwing the ball. He started throwing the ball again yesterday. John Payton said he looked good. Uh, he was at practice today. Obviously, the bigger news of the day is he's restructuring his contract to uh, give the Saints two to three million dollars more in 
salary cap relief for this season, and like they've been doing lately, they're robbing Peter to pay Paul, and they're backloading that that deal next year where it's going to be thirty million dollars, which makes you uh, probably realize that they're probably just going to extend it and kind of you know put the money in. But as far as his arm goes, you know I, I think he's leaning more to playing at this point than not playing. But Luke McCown played so well. And I think he feels, okay, uh, it has to be feeling really good for me to play. But as of today, I would tell you, um, I would lean in the favor of him suiting up on Sunday versus the Cowboys against not doing so. Yeah, I think that's the general impression that most Cowboys followers have that uh, Drew Brees will be available to play. Obviously, for the Cowboys, Tony Romo is uh, not coming back anytime soon. So we are going to have to deal with the Brandon Whedon era, at least until Matt Castle uh, becomes available. But for us, we saw a lot of checkdowns out of Brandon Whedon, and when I did a quick perusal of what happened in the Saints game, I did tend to see a lot of checkdowns coming from Luke McCown. Is Was that basically based on his limitations, or was that really the game plan that the Saints wanted to execute against the Panthers? I think that was game plan. I think they're actually shocked at how well he did play. I, mean, I, I don't mean that as an anti-Luke McCown statement, but the Saints – you know, the guy hasn't started a game in four years, and the last time he started, he had a 1.8 QBR rating, uh, and so it wasn't didn't go so well. He looked sharp. I got to tell you, KD, he looked sharp. He looked like he belonged in the NFL. He completed 14 of his first 15 passes. Didn't need to go vertical a whole lot, but I got to tell you, he did it. He did it effectively when he did, and he completed several third down conversions. And quite frankly, it was a it was a big improvement from what we saw from Breeze against Tampa Bay. Now, we knew the day later that the reason Breeze didn't look so good, well, he had a bruised rotator cuff. So there are reasons for that. But Luke McCown certainly filled in better than anyone in the Crescent City could have expected. All right, let's switch gears a little bit. And, again, we're here with Scott Alexander of 100.3 FM ESPN Radio New Orleans getting the inside scoop on the Cowboys' next opponent, the Saints, coming up Sunday night on uh, national television. Now, Cowboys fans are familiar with the failings of Rob Ryan's defense, uh, most notably the way that he insisted on sticking with his scheme above and beyond the skill sets of the players that were actually running it. So tell me, we know that they're giving up a lot of passing yards and obscene amount. Tell me what is and isn't working for the Saints defense in 2015. Wow, that's a, that's a loaded question. Uh, you're right. I guess if there's, any, <laughs> if there's any team that knows exactly what's going on, it's the Dallas Cowboys. Um, like he did in Dallas, and maybe even more dramatically, he came in, took over a bad, bad defense, and then all of a sudden vaulted them into the top five uh, in both scoring yep. defense as well as yards defense. So then I guess teams kind of caught on. You know, the Saints uh, were playing a new style. So uh, after teams looked at film, they came crashing down to reality last year, finished 31st. Uh, this year, uh, I'd say it's a little better, but the problem here is, that the fans are getting a little fed up because they are seeing the team get cashed, uh, especially last week with Greg Olson. You figure that the Carolinas didn't have any weapons, and this guy was continuing to be open. He had a career-high game in yards. He had two touchdowns. He was almost unstoppable. As far as Ryan goes, the one thing I will say, they are starting four rookies on defense and have from day one. Uh, there is talk that Keenan Lewis, the, probably the best player they had on defense last year, who had some surgery literally four weeks ago. He's back at practice. Uh, he thinks he's going to play. Jarris Bird, who's been a phantom here, he's getting $9 million a year and literally has played in about three and a half games in two years. 
Mm-hmm. They say he may play Sunday. But uh, that said, um, you know, you can't rely on those guys till they're here. Four rookies, Aoli Kikaha, linebacker, Stephon Anthony, first-round pick linebacker. They both have been starting since the beginning. Delvin Bro was forced to play. He's the guy that sat out of football for six years with a broken neck, never played it down in right. college football, and now he's starting in his first game ever in the NFL, and now he's been starting it. Quite frankly, he's been one of the best players on the defense. And the other guy has been a pleasant surprise, nickel corner Damian Swan. But let's be real. You can't win in the NFL with four new rookies starting on any defense, and seven of the 11 guys are, are new ones to the Saints team that are starting. Yeah, that definitely makes it difficult. Um, one, of, one of the things that, I guess, captured the national attention surrounding the Saints, obviously, was the offseason trade of Jimmy Grant to bring in, uh, you know, an upper echelon center in Max Unger. The theory was that the Saints wanted to make sure that they solidified the protection for Drew Brees and whichever quarterback is lining up uh, directly in the middle, and they obviously had to give up one of the better playmakers in the NFL in order to do so. So, Tell me, how does that work? Is, is the interior of the line solidified? Um, Dallas's pass rush is struggling right now. Is there any hope to be able to penetrate that Saints line and affect uh, the quarterback with some pressure? Well, it's been it's been interesting. Theron Armstead on the left side has been named, you know, the number one tackle by Pro Football Focus so far this year. He's solid. The center, Max Unger, better than advertised. He's solid, but it has been a chess a chess match with everybody else. Honestly, uh, it's, it's the first game of Arizona looked good. looked terrible, and I mean terrible against Tampa Bay. Uh, they took out Jari Evans, the five-time pro bowler. He's, he's been hurting, so they, they sat him. They brought in Senio Calamente, who was an undrafted free agent last year. He actually looked good. Uh, the, the problem is Zach Streep on the right side uh, has not looked consistent. He's the right tackle, and then the left guard, Molito, who was kind of a project, another guy undrafted free agent a couple years back. They tinker with him at center last year. Uh, it didn't really work out. But So that thing is still a work in progress. You have two guys that I think are all pro players, and I really mean that, and the other three are big question marks. So that said, it's no Dallas Cowboy offensive ball. Yeah, well, you, you might not say that if you see Sunday night because uh, we, we haven't been as advertised so far this year. Uh, it looked like we had turned the corner in the game against Atlanta in the first half and opened up a lot of holes, uh, but things quickly deteriorated uh, as the game wore on. So it'll be interesting to see which kind of offensive line shows up for the Cowboys, uh, and obviously you'll be paying attention to which uh, kind shows up for the Saints. Uh, final question before I let you go, because uh, I know you're a busy man, but how do you see this game playing out? Are the Saints in line to grab that uh, first victory of the season, or do you see the Cowboys coming out on top? Well, Cowboys are the better team right now. I mean, I'm, I'm just being honest with you. I, I, the reason I'm going to pick the Saints has nothing to do, honestly, with football. It has to do with, with two things. Backs against the wall kind of situation here. Mm-hmm. The, Saints, the Saints have had the ball. It's not like they've been getting blown out. They've had the ball in each of the three games with under three minutes uh, and most of the time under two minutes with ample time to score and haven't got it done. Uh, you know, each and every game something's happened. So it's not like they're out of all the games. That said, uh, the mystique from the Superdome has been absolutely gone. I mean, under Sean Payton, they literally won 20 straight games in the Dome. They've now lost six in a row, including the first game they played this year, which is two weeks ago against Tampa Bay. However, the thing they have going for them is that nighttime mystique. Honestly, they, they did lose mm-hmm. the last one they played was Baltimore. 
But they had won 21 in a row at night in the Dome and by an average of 21 points. So they have something going. The Cowboys saw it two years ago when the Saints set that NFL record for 40 first downs and, you know, an NFL game, and, and they had it going on. That team is not here. But I do feel that the Mystique will give them enough to give them a close win. That said, these are two teams struggling, maybe for different reasons, y'all because of injury, the Saints because of transition. Uh, I think it's going to be a better matchup. I think it's going to be more entertaining than a lot of people think. But uh, when it comes down to it, it's a toss-up. I'm just going to give the Saints the advantage because of the nighttime dome mystique. It'll be very interesting. As you said, the Saints have lost six in a row at home. The Cowboys have won ten in a row on the road. Uh, but we all know what happens, how those NOLA fans get fired up to see the Dallas Cowboys stars on the opposite sideline. So it'll be a very interesting battle indeed. Yeah, I root for the Cowboys, honestly. And I, I think that when – does settle if you can get Romo back, you know, within a, a reasonable amount of time, and does Bryant as well. That team's going to make a big, big run. That's what all the fans are hoping for in Cowboys Nation. Ladies and gentlemen, the one and only Scott Alexander has blessed us with his presence here on the podcast. And of course, you can follow him on Twitter at Scotty A ESPN, and make sure that you're checking him out on ESPN Radio New Orleans 100.3. You can find that online as well as at SaintsInsider.com on the Scout Network. Scott, thank you so much for your time today, man. Yes, man, KD, I appreciate you. And that'll just about do it for this episode of Cowboys Crunch Time with KD. Thank you so much for tuning in. You know, we're nothing without our listeners and. You guys have been awesome as the numbers continue to grow on the show. We are here for you. Obviously, I am flanked the one and only Cowboys insider, Mike Fisher, at Fish Sports. See the X's and O's guru, Mr. Joey Ikes, at Joey Ikes on Twitter. And our guest on the New Orleans Saints coverage, Mr. Scott Alexander. You can follow him on Twitter at Scotty A ESPN. Me? You can follow at KD Drummond NFL. And obviously, all week, every week, day in, day out. You can go to CowboysHQ.com to listen to, to read my musings. And you can watch me on video now. I've returned to the video realm, hopefully successfully. I'll leave that up to you and your discretion of how you categorize it. But we are doing the videos once again, so make sure that when you click on those articles, you check out the videos that are at the top of the page. Uh, I'm doing some good things with the Scout Network. Uh, obviously, glad to be part of that home. And we will be bringing you some video analysis in the near future. So more than just the short tidbits, we're going to be definitely expanding the video game, uh, the video game, the, yeah, you know what I mean? So look out for that. You know how we used to do it back in the days that's coming back even more better, bigger and better than ever. So what I'm trying to say is stay tuned. We got you covered. That's it for this episode of crunch time with KD. You know what it is. Salute.
watch call and complain. Hate no my big fan.